Good morning. Again. <clears throat> no more coughing. It's not allowed. Sorry. You have to stop that. <laughs> um, I want to ask you this morning, have you ever just <coughs> goofed something up and it worked out for you? Huh? You're like, story of my life, right? <laughs> I want to give you a few examples this morning of some things that you know about that maybe you didn't know were actually mess-ups that worked out. Anybody ever heard this song? What walks downstairs alone or in pairs and makes a slinkety sound. Anybody know what I'm talking about? A spring, a spring, a marvelous thing. Everyone knows it's... Slinky. <clears throat> yeah. That song very well could have went, What Walks Downstairs Alone or Impairs and Makes a Slinkety Sound. The Spring of Spring, a Marvelous Thing. Everyone knows it's industrial equipment stabilizers. <laughs> Maybe not quite as catchy. <clears throat> but that was the intended use of the springs that naval engineer Richard James was developing in 1943. The sensitive springs were meant to keep fragile equipment steady on ships. Then, Mr. James knocked one of the new springs from a shelf, and like a kid on Christmas morning, he watched it do that slinkety thing down the stairs. He took it home and he told his wife, hey, watch what this does. She's like, we got us a gold mine right here. He took the creation home, showed his wife. After consulting the dictionary, a name came to mind slinky and a slinky is a Swedish term meaning sleek and sinuous yeah okay so they took and they they demonstrated the toy in front of Gimbel's department store in Philadelphia during the 1945 Christmas season and it became what Time magazine noted as one of the all-time greatest toys ever mistake whoopsie slinky anybody ever use post-it notes Huh? Spencer Silver almost threw the formula for the post-it note glue away because he was trying in 1968 to come up with a super strong adhesive for 3M laboratories. Well, his formula didn't work out and one of his buddies from another department came by one day in 1974 and his buddy saw what nobody else saw. He saw something that would help him, listen, to hold his page in his hymn book. He's like, give me some of that glue. I'm going to put it on my bookmark in my hymn so that it doesn't fall out. And that's what he did. And so they put it on little pieces of paper after that. And the post-it note was born in 1980, a decade after Mr. Silver had developed the formula for his not-so-sticky glue. Whoops. Good job. Cornflakes. You know those are a mistake, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dr. John Kellogg. I don't make this stuff up, y'all. Dr. John Kellogg and his brother Keith in 1894 were laughed at as weirdo health freaks who put visitors at their hospital and health spa in Battle Creek, Michigan through strange health regiments that included abstaining from meat, alcohol, tobacco, and even sex. One part of that regiment was eliminating caffeine by using a coffee substitute made of a type of granola. Let that sink in for a second. After cooking some wheat, the men were called away, as happens when you're running a busy sanatorium. When they came back, the wheat had become stale, but ever the budget-conscious hippies, they decided to force it through the rollers anyway. Instead of coming out in long sheets of dough, each wheat berry flattened and came out as a thin flake. The brothers baked the flakes and boom, a new breakfast cereal fad was born as the Kellogg's official website points out. Whoops, cornflakes. Two more. Because there was like nine of these, but I had, to, I had to weed them down. How about anybody ever heard of, anybody know somebody had a pacemaker? Pacemaker was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Wilson Great Batch made a classic dumb move. 
pulling the wrong part out of a box of equipment. It was a major act of numbskullery that became a major part of saving millions of lives. In 1956, Great Batch was working on building a heart rhythm recording device at the University of Buffalo. He reached into a box and pulled out a resistor of the wrong size and plugged it into the circuit. When he installed it, he recognized the rhythmic lub-dub sound of the human heart. The beat, according to his 2001 obituary in the New York Times, reminded him of chats he had had with other scientists about whether an electrical stimulation could make up for a breakdown in the heart's natural beats. Before then, pacemakers were hulking machines the size of TVs. Great Batch's implantable device of just two cubic inches forever changed life expectancy in the world. Now more than half a million of the devices are implanted every year. Whoops. Pacemaker. Last one. Penicillin. The article says, If Alexander Fleming's mother were around, we might all be a little sicker. Like everyone eager to go on vacation, Alexander Fleming left a pile of dirty Petri dishes stacked up at his workstation before he left town. When he returned from holiday on September 3rd, 1928, he began sorting through them to see if any could be salvaged, discovering most had been contaminated, as you might expect would happen in a bacteria lab in a hospital. As has been well documented in history books and on the Nobel Prize website, Fleming dumped most of the dishes in a vat of Lysol. But when he got to a dish containing Staphylococcus, something odd caught his eye. The dish was covered in colonies of bacteria, except in one area where a blob of mold was growing. Around the mold was an area free of bacteria, as if the mold had blocked the bacteria from spreading. He realized it could be used to kill a wide range of bacteria, and penicillin was identified. Whoops, penicillin. We've sung this morning a lot about us being able to mess up and God being faithful. And what we're going to look at this morning is what seems like an error, what seems like a slip-up, what seems like a mess-up that God used for good. If you would, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 11 as we continue our trek through the book of Romans. Let's see what might mess up that might help somebody this morning. If you would stand, we're going to read verses 11 through 15 of chapter 11. <clears throat> so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Let me pray. God, you excel at giving us beauty for ashes. You excel at taking what we mess up and making something beautiful out of it. Even our sin, even our rejection of you. God, you make beautiful things. Help us to see the beauty of your work and the power of your grace as we look at your word. Holy Spirit, teach us, change us, and get glory through us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Romans 11.11. Make a wish, right? 11.11. Is it 11.11? That would have been awesome. If, let's wait three minutes, okay? Let's just hang out and talk until 11.11 so we can start. Okay, I won't make y'all do that. Huh? Somebody, let me just set my watch up. It's 11.11, y'all. We're going to look at Romans 11.11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So 11.11 starts with the word, so. So what? Why are we starting this passage with so? Now that's kind of a conclusion type of statement, right? So, x plus y equals c. So, we got to ask ourselves, what is he addressing? What was prior to this question? 
which takes us back to last week. And last week we looked at the fact that national Israel was hardened because of the election of God and their own disobedience. And hardened meant that they lost the ability to understand or see what the requirements for righteousness were by God's design. Isaiah talked about them having a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. And David asked that God's enemies, which ended up being God's people, would have their table turned into a snare, a trap, and a retribution, and that their eyes would be darkened so their retribution would be just. And he asked that, they, that, he would, that God would blind their eyes and bend their backs because of their disobedience and rebellion. And Paul pulled that into Israel's life and said, this is about Israel. Which is kind of tough. So, in light of all that, Paul asks, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? If all this judgment fell on them, if they were disobedient, if all of that is true, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall. Now what does that mean? It's actually an odd arrangement of words. Did ethnic national Israel stumble that they might fall? And if you look back at 11.1, you see this is almost exactly the same question. It should be... I've got the wrong verse up there. No, that's alright. I ask then, has God rejected His people? That's how uh, Paul starts the chapter. And what was his answer? By no means. So he asks in 11.1, has God rejected His people? And back here in 11.11, he says, have they stumbled in order that they might fall? Which is asking the same question. And what was his answer both times? By no means. So 11.1 and 11.11, which now it's 11.11. So anyway, I'll get off that horse. Um, Did they stumble so that they might fall? Has God rejected them? And after spending time to answer the question in 11.1 by talking about blind eyes and deaf ears and bent backs, it might seem like the answer is yes. But is it? Let's look. Here in verse 11, the word stumble is pateo, and it means not potato. You say pateo, I say pataho, but you can't help it. You just can't help it. <laughs> oh, sometimes I listen to these, I'm like, what are you doing? So. The word for stumble is pateo, P-T-A-I-O, and autocorrect tried to correct that to patio, which is not right either. Pateo, and it means to make a mistake or to sin. So have they made a mistake or sinned in order that they might fall? Have they stumbled in order that they might fall? Have they sinned in order... But what about fall? What does fall mean? Well, their fall, it's a different Greek word, pesosin, and it means to fall to ruin. To disappear. So did they sin to the point that they will never be a part of God's plan again? That's what Paul's asking. They rejected Jesus, who was their Messiah when He came. They rejected Him outright. They crucified Him, right? And surely that was their last shot. He he suffered under Pontius Pilate, right? We said that this morning. Well, who sent Him to Pontius Pilate? The Jews did. Now listen, we are not anti-Semitic. We are not anti-Jew. But the history tells us that the Jews sent him to Pilate so that Pilate could have him crucified. Okay? They cast God in the flesh out of their midst. And so surely God would thrust them out, right? Surely they have sinned beyond being forgiven. Beyond having any hope of salvation, right? And what's Paul's answer to his own question? Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. It's that God forbid the thought word when it says by no means. Meaning there is no possible chance that the thought could even begin to be formed in anyone's mind. Have they sinned so much, so bad, that God is going to cast them away and have nothing to do with ethnic Israel ever again? And the answer is by no means, absolutely not. But what about last week? Right? What about being hardened, losing the ability to understand what is necessary to be saved? What about their table being a snare and a trap and a retribution for their sin and their bad behavior? What about getting what they deserve for their sin? Remember that last week? Wasn't that a thing? Yes, it was and yes, it is. 
But remember, two weeks ago, you're going, man, I don't know, I don't remember yesterday. But if you'll think about two weeks ago, we also said Paul knew God had not cast Israel out completely. Why? Because Paul was a Jew, right? What else did he say? God had preserved a remnant chosen by grace in Elijah's time, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And that that was going on, he said, even up to this day, is what Paul said then. So he hadn't cast them out completely. It's clear that at the time of the writing of Romans, not all ethnic Israel had been saved and not all ethnic Israel was cast out. They have not stumbled to the point of falling away completely. Listen to what I'm about to say. Because this is going to form a foundation for the rest of the book, uh, rest of the chapter 11 in Romans. Listen. God has a plan for some of ethnic Israel. And God has a plan for the Gentile nations too. God chose some from both groups for salvation by grace. And here's where things start to get really sticky as far as end times doctrine and God's overarching plan of salvation. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Look at the rest of verse 11. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So, have, has Israel fallen away completely? By no means. Rather... Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So Israel, in general, overall, rejected their Messiah, who was Jesus. So did God fail and Jesus just take His ball and go home to heaven feeling dejected and angry? They wouldn't let me play. No, but rather, but rather, He opened the door of salvation to those outside of ethnic Israel. Read the book of Acts. Read Paul's other epistles. The first believers were surely Jewish. But the work of Christ spread quickly to the Gentiles who began to receive the work of Christ in mass. And they didn't have to become Jewish to embrace this new faith. Israel, as a general rule, rejected this new faith. But this new faith was openly embraced by Gentiles. So did God change His focus? It seems so. Paul says a few times on his missionary journeys, the first place that he went when he went into town was where? Do you remember? He went to the synagogue, to the Jewish synagogue, to preach to the Jews. And usually what happened was they're like, no, you're a nut. And what would he say? Fine, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he went and preached to the Gentiles. And man, they believed. That's usually how it happened. So did God change his focus? Hmm. Is God doing a new thing with the gospel. Well, surely He is. And it's here that dispensational theology would say that God began a new dispensation where God set Israel aside and focuses on the church and that focus will continue until the rapture when the church is taken out of the world, the tribulation begins and God then chooses 12,000 from each Jewish tribe and makes them evangelists who effectively go into the world and proclaim their faith in Jesus, making converts during that tribulation period. Now that's Revelation 14, if you're wondering where that's at. But, there's another thought pattern, another set of doctrines, another theology, which you could call Reformed or maybe even Covenant theology. Those aren't quite the same, they're close. And these people would say that there are three basic covenants that God made regarding salvation. The first being made within the Godhead, which they call the covenant of redemption. And that covenant was the agreement within the Godhead to send the Son into the world to do the work of redemption. Then God made two covenants with man. The covenant of works made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, where God promised life for obedience and death for disobedience. Well, we all know how that went, right? So God enacted the covenant of grace, wherein those who trusted in the work of Jesus would be eternally blessed as the children of God. These believers, the elect of God, were chosen before the foundation of the world and would all be saved the same way. And how are we saved? 
by grace through faith. Whether they were Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, Scythian, barbarian, everyone who was saved from eternity past to eternity future would be saved the same way, not in different ways or different dispensations. Now that is a very, very basic overview of dispensational and covenant views of God's plan to redeem mankind. And I want to drop that seed into your heart. And I only, I only do that because here in Romans 11, we see that Paul is pointing out shifts in God's dealings with man. He chose Israel. Israel sinned or stumbled. The Gentiles begin to come into focus. And as we'll see in just a little bit, Israel comes back into focus. So which of those two thought patterns is right? Dispensationalism, covenant theology. I'm not going to overtly tip my hand today as to what I think. But I want to sow these seeds so that you can be thinking about it, researching it, praying about it as we work through the rest of Romans 11. Because listen to me, it's important. And some of you are are rock solid in what you believe. Some of you would tell me straight out, I'm this, or I'm that, or I'm of this vein, I'm of that vein. Or some of you may say, well, I'm kind of a hybrid between the two. I want you to know. I want you to know what you believe. And and I say that because I'm not sure that I know sometimes. And I need to. I need to be able to talk to somebody intelligently and say, well, this is what I believe because the Scripture says this. Not because it's what I want or what I've, you know, the chart is easy to memorize but because this is what the Bible says. And we're going to hit this even harder. We'll hit it some today, but we'll hit it even harder next week and the following week and we talk about what God ends up doing with the Jews, with Israel. So keep that in the forefront of your mind. And it will surely affect how these passages in Romans 11 are interpreted. And interpretation of the Bible is serious business. It's a big deal. It's not willy-nilly, well, this is what I think it says. I don't care what you think it says. I don't care what I think it says. What matters is what it means. And we've got to do the hard work of praying and studying and and asking and questioning and beating our heads against the wall until we say, this, thus saith the Lord. And you say, can we know everything? Nope, we can't. We cannot and we will not. But dadgummit, I'm going to give it a shot. And I would ask you to join me in that. So back to the passage. Did Israel stumble to the point of falling away? By no means. Rather, as opposed to the thought that their sin led to their demise, it actually meant salvation for the Gentiles. God takes what looks bad and a whoopsie and makes it good. He makes a slinky out of a spring. It's a marvelous thing. I can't stop. God takes what looks bad and makes it good. And that's so like God. It's what we sung about this morning. But is that the end? Israel sins, so God turns to Gentiles and we all live happily ever after. Well, yes and no. Is Gentile salvation an end in itself? No, it's not. Look at the end of the verse. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? So as to make Israel jealous. Are you you seeing what's going on here? Israel rejects God's plan. God turns that into salvation for the Gentiles and then uses the Gentile salvation to make Israel jealous. Now does that mean that God is using the Gentiles and His relationship with them as a rebound relationship? Anybody ever been in a rebound relationship? Let's go back to high school. Come on. Or maybe college. Okay. Maybe some of you waited till college like good Christians. I don't know. I did not. Okay, And I had a girl in high school who treated me pretty bad. And we should hiss when we say her name, but we won't. <laughs> well, I got, I got real smart after she, after she um, treated me not so nicely. And I said, I'm going to find me somebody else to date. And I'm going to hold her hand when we walk through the halls together. And I'm going to look at that other girl as I walk by. And I'm going to swing my hand. And I'm going to... I'm still swinging. You know what I'm talking about? A rebound relationship. Anybody ever been in a rebound? Anybody ever been on the other side of a rebound relationship? 
somebody's just dating you to make their ex jealous. <laughs> is that what's going on here with God? I mean, and I don't, I don't want to sound irreverent, but is He just like, fine, you don't want me? Look, I've got the Gentiles. Kind of. But He's not using us only. Only. <laughs> I'll show them. I'll date somebody else and make them eat their hearts out. No real love or concern for the person being dated, just using them to stick it to the one who dumped you. Is that what God's doing? The answer is no, it's not. His plan from the beginning was salvation for the world, the whole world. The covenant with Abraham that he established said that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham and Abraham's seed. Israel, yeah, and the seed was Christ, is Christ. But Israel got a little too self-focused and they rejected their Messiah. They didn't want to do it God's way. They'd figured out their own way to do it. But God's plan had always included the world, so Jesus' work opened the door wide to the world. And as that began to become so much bigger and clearer, as the ends of the earth began hearing the gospel, guess what happened? Well, the Jews started seeing what they were missing. And they started putting the pieces together and going, Oh... This guy was our Messiah. Some of them did. And it moved them toward Jesus and His work. All of them? No. But we'll talk more about that later in Romans 11. But God's remnant chosen by grace of Jew and Gentile are now being saved by grace through faith all over the world. The same gospel is now saving Jew and Gentile. So Israel rejected. The Gentiles embraced. Not all of the Gentiles either though. Keep that in mind. And the Jews were moved to jealousy, bringing them to God on God's terms, not their own. And God's plan is seen as effective and beautiful. Oh, it looks like God failed because the Israelites rejected Him. Oh, wait, people all over the world are being saved. And those back in Israel going, what's going on here? I want some of that. And God's glorified. And God is majestic in all of it. And seen as the architect of a plan that looked like it failed... But it didn't fail. It accomplished exactly what he set out to do. Amen. It's good stuff, y'all. And that's one verse. <laughs> Let's move on. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Boy, we're, we're getting onto the thin ice here. Now let me tell you what Paul's doing first in this verse. He's using an argument form here that that he uses a lot. He seems to like it. He's saying, if something really good can come out of something bad, doesn't it make sense that something even better can come out of something good? He used this same pattern when he said back in Romans 5, 9, and 10. Check this out. Since therefore we now have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. So what Paul is saying there is, if death saved us, how much more can life do? And if God reconciled us while we were enemies, what might He do now that we're His children? So something bad brought something good. And then back in Romans eleven twelve. He says, if the trespass of the Jews gave the riches of salvation to the world and their failure means riches of life for the Gentiles, how much better, what greater things will result from their being included in God's family? If God took something bad and made something good out of it, just what in the world can He do with something so great and beautiful as Gentiles and Jews being part of the same work, the same family, the same purpose of God? How much better would that be? Makes me think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. His brother sold him into slavery and awful things happened to him till he ultimately ended up in prison after being falsely accused of assaulting his master's wife. But God used those situations to prepare a way for Joseph to become second in command in Egypt from the pit to the throne basically. And when he became second in command he prepared not just Egypt but also the world around them for a seven-year famine that was coming. When his family back up in 
Israel, Palestine, needed food during the famine, where do you think they came? They came to Egypt to their brother who they thought was dead and they didn't know it was him. And so that whole drama plays out at the end of Genesis. And then finally, after they come to Egypt and are living and they're in the midst of the famine, but they're surviving because God made a way out of something bad. Their dad dies and the brothers are afraid that Joseph's going to punish them because now dad's gone. He's probably still mad at us over that whole selling him into slavery thing. You ain't mad at us, are you, Joe? Maybe just a little bit. So what did Joseph say to him? You've heard this probably. Genesis 50, 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now track with that. He told them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. John Piper points out that Joseph does not say, you meant it for evil, but God saw that evil and turned it around and used it for good. That's not what he said. No, rather he said, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. Now what's the difference between those things? The difference is that God, listen, God uses the evil acts of evil men to accomplish His purposes. Now what did I just say? God uses the evil acts of evil men to accomplish His purposes. You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, look at the cross. Evil men delivered Jesus over to evil men to do evil things to Him. And our Bible tells us that that was planned before the foundation of the world. So did God commit sin? By no means. May it never be. God forbid But God did use the evil acts of evil men to accomplish His purpose. And He always has and He always will. Now listen, if we were of a different ilk, that might get us up in our chairs dancing a little bit. Somebody's going, what's wrong with that? Nothing. Hop on up here if you want to. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah, just walk straight. Make sure you stay on the tops of the chairs, not the... (laughs) So, so why is that a big deal? God uses the evil acts of evil men to accomplish His purposes. God used the sin of Joseph's brothers to do something good. And in the same way here in Romans eleven twelve, God uses the trespass of Israel to bring life to the Gentiles. And that's good news. What that means is that, listen, God, please listen. What that means is that there is no sin too great for God to not only turn around, but even to use the acts of sinful men to accomplish His purposes in my life. Can God use my sin to bring about something good in my life? He can. And He will. And He does. Don and I were eating pancakes. Actually, I was eating pancakes. Don was drinking coffee Friday morning because he's too uppity to eat with me, because I'm from Helen. And we were talking about, I I was kind of spilling my guts, and I I was confessing some of my sins is what I was doing, and saying that, man, I have felt very undisciplined uh, over the last couple of months. I feel like I've kind of drifted into laziness, and um, and that has spilled over into every area of my life. And I've been undisciplined and I've probably, uh, not probably, I have done things that I wouldn't have done if I had been disciplined. If I had been in the Word consistently, if I'd been praying consistently and looking at things I shouldn't look at and thinking about things I shouldn't think about and listening to things I probably shouldn't listen to. And I realized after I left there, my wife and I had had the same conversation the night before and thinking about our table becoming a trap and a snare and how lazy and undisciplined I've been in my eating and how I'm feeling the effects of it because I don't feel good. Now, can God use that to bring about something good in my life? He has. Let me tell you what, guys. I was singing this morning and I felt like I was worshiping. And I don't know that I felt like that for a long time because I was doing it because it had to be done. And this morning, I'm like, God, I see. I have sinned. You see the depths of my heart and you love me the same? You're amazing, God. 
when I'm lazy, when I'm undisciplined, when I sin, God is going to use even that sin that I commit. God didn't commit it. I committed it. And He's going to take that and use it to work something beautiful into my life. Repentance, restoration, worship out of my sin. That's really good news. I know who I am and so does He. And He still loves me the same. You are amazing, God. Remember Romans 8? God causes all things. A-L-L. All things to work together for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes. Even sin. Now does He despise sin? Yes, He does. It is an affront. It is a frontal attack on the holiness of God when we sin. But He can take that and work something beautiful out of it into my life, just like He did with Joseph, just like He did with the trespass of the Jews. That gives me hope. That gives me great hope. That gives me relief. That gives me rest. It's not okay to sin. It's not okay to sin. But God doesn't stop working when I sin. Matter of fact, He uses that sin to work something beautiful in my life. (laughs) And I'm glad. I'm so glad. He used the sin of Israel to save Gentiles. Now just imagine what He can do when Israel is fully included in God's work today. If He can use bad things and sin to accomplish His purpose, imagine the glory when things are as they should be. Next two verses. Romans 11, 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. Paul makes it clear here that he wants what he is saying to be clear to his readers who would have been predominantly Gentiles at that time in Rome. Way back in the beginning we talked about how the Jews had been forced out of Rome and they were starting to trickle back in a little bit, but the largest part of Paul's audience was Jewish. I mean, not Jewish, I'm sorry. The largest part of Paul's audience was Gentiles, which makes it really weird that he spent so much time talking about the Jews in this epistle. Again, not exclusively Gentile, but predominantly. He spent a lot of time in this letter doling out bad news for the Jews, seemingly blistering them for their disobedience and their seeking to establish their own righteousness. And now here... He takes a little detour and he addresses the Gentiles specifically. He reminds them that he has been largely a Gentile-driven apostle. Look at Galatians 2, 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw, talking about the elders in Jerusalem, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, <laughs> a little shade there, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised. So Paul is saying, my ministry, I'm assigned to the Gentiles. That's what God gave me to do. And even the big... Important apostles agreed. And they said, right hand of fellowship, you go to the Gentiles, we'll go to the Jews. So Paul had spent most of his time focusing on working with and preaching to Gentiles. Now he'll say later in Romans that his goal is to preach Christ where people had not ever heard of Christ before. So what kind of audience would that be? Jew or Gentile? Mostly Gentile. And he says in Romans eleven thirteen, what we just looked at, that he's an apostle to the Gentiles and that he magnified that ministry. So the Gentiles are going, yay, that's our guy, Paul, he's our guy. But why is he doing that? Look at verse 14 again. In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus to save some of them. Well then, <laughs> we've seen similar statements in chapter 9 when Paul said his heart's desire was for the salvation of the Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh. But here, he says he ministers to Gentiles specifically so that his fellow Jews will be jealous and get saved themselves. Now what about that? Even his work with the Gentiles had a Jewish motivation, a Jewish bent to it. And why wouldn't it? They were his people, right? He had family members. Anybody got family members that are lost? I hope you want them saved. 
And he's saying, i got family members that are lost. They need to know Jesus. So I'm going to reach out to people that aren't Jewish, that aren't in my family, and preach the gospel to them so that when they believe, my family members might look and say, wow, I like what they got. He was steeped in the culture of the Jews, their lifestyle. He said in, in one letter that he was exceeding in the Jewish lifestyle far above his contemporaries. He was super Jew. And he loved the Jewish people. And that really reveals his heart and his ministry philosophy. And it should color ours as well. We should know our place in redemptive history and understand our standing in God's plan. And more about that next week. But for now, let's look at our last verse. For if their, the Jews, rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? It's another one of those, if something good can come out of something bad, how much better will something be that comes out of something good? And it's another proposal for what may happen if Israel becomes a focal point of God's plan again. What Don read at the beginning? Can you hear the, those dry bones rattling? Can these bones live again? Can Israel be a part of God's plan again? I love Ezekiel's answer. You know, Lord. Uh, be careful answering God back. Can I do this? Well, you know if you can do it or not, God. Can I give you beauty for ashes? Well, God, you know if you can or not. I love that answer. I love it. Dead bones, dry bones are rattling. If Israel, rejecting their Messiah, gave life eternal to the rest of the world, what in the world might happen if they accept the ministry of Jesus as their Messiah? I think it's interesting that Paul here did not say and is not saying that this is resurrection from the dead. It's life from the dead. It's an individual thing. We will be resurrected from the dead. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. But here, Paul references Israel as a nation, as a people, as an ethnic group, experiencing life as a group from the dead. Now let me ask you something real quick. Do you want proof that the Bible is true? Anybody want that proof? Nobody? Fine. I'm, I'm Take my coffee and go home. Man, it'd be great to know, wouldn't it? I mean, I say it. I say it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? What if I could give you some proof? Let me tell you one of the greatest single proofs that the Bible is true. Look at the nation of Israel. You're like, okay. If you want proof that the Bible is true, look at the Jewish people. How many times, how many instances do we see of someone or some nation that has wanted to exterminate the Jews as a people? The Old Testament is filled with the enemies of the Jews trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. Philistines, Ammonites, Moabites, and more and more ites that just simply hated the nation of Israel. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome all ruled over and oppressed the Jews. What about the book of Esther? What was that guy's name? Haman? What did he want? He wanted to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. And if that wasn't enough, we've seen it in modern history. Hitler's Germany. What about ISIS? Hamas? PLO? And why? Because they are Jews. So many would just like for the Jews to die. They'd love to exterminate them. And they were dispersed and scattered from the time of the exile in the Old Testament. And they came back from that exile, a tattered, torn, bedraggled group of people who were constantly ruled over by outsiders until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And everybody thought, good, they're done. The nation of Israel is done. And then what happened? May 14, 1948. Israel was declared to be a nation again. Dry bones are rattling. And Jews from all over the world returned to the homeland of the descendants of Abraham to be nation Israel again. And some people say that was the rebirth of Israel. But here, Paul says that their acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah would be life from the dead. That Israel would be born anew 
a nation brought back to life by God Himself, not by somebody's signature on a page who ruled a nation somewhere else in the world. So was May 14, 1948, the rebirth of Israel? As a nation, yes. Is that what Paul's referencing here? No. Something bigger and better is implied here. God's plan, not man's plan, not the nation's. Why do the nations rage? The Lord in heaven laughs and says, I got this handled. I'm in charge here. Paul says their acceptance of Jesus as their Messiah would be life from the dead, that Israel would be born anew, a nation brought back to life by God Himself. And will that happen? Will, will they be brought back to life from the dead? Hmm. You'll have to wait for the answer. But not too long. God, you know, that's right. Romans 11 will address this and more. But for today, let's see some application from what we have looked at. And so what we have learned before too. Everybody's singing. I love it. And somewhere Bob the Tomato is frustrated. Now, I've got three points of application from what we've looked at. And the overarching principle in all three application points is know your role. We got any rock fans in here? Know your role. No, okay, good. Y'all shouldn't watch wrestling. It's bad. Three things. Know your role in God's plan. Know your role for God's people. Your role. And then finally, know your role with God's peace. Okay? Did you get that? Know your role in God's plan. Know your role for God's people. And know your role with God's peace. First, know your role in God's plan. We could very easily look at this progression of God's dealings with people and think that we could do better. We'd be more efficient. We would have a better plan than God had. Because, I mean, really, let's look at this plan for a second. I'm going to take one man... I'm going to make a great nation out of them. I'm going to adopt that nation as my own. I'm going to give them my covenants, my promises, my law, and I'm going to expect them to reach out to the world and bless the whole world with the life that they're living. They're going to fail. They're going to reject me. I'm going to turn my attention and my focus to the rest of the world, which is what they should have been doing. And I'm going to do that in order to make them jealous so that they'll come back in. I could think of a better plan than that, I think. But yet that's God's plan. Right? So know your role in God's plan. We think we could do better. We think we could be more efficient. <laughs> but God's plan is perfect. And we have said that over and over again through this study of Romans. As for this God, His way is perfect. Now according to today's passage, Israel rejected their Messiah... God gave salvation as a result of their rejection to the Gentiles and did so in order to make the Gentiles jealous or the Jews jealous. It just seems weird. But God is not doing things haphazardly. He is not, listen, He is not reacting to failures with His hands on His head in disbelief of what's going on. This is all completely in His grasp going according to the eternal counsel of His will. You say, well, what's that got to do with application? Knowing these things, knowing that God is sovereignly in control, you sang this morning, we can continue to draw comfort and assurance in a world where things look like they are spiraling out of control. Watch the news, people. We can watch the news and say, God's in control of all of this. I wouldn't do it that way, but I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and not say that because God is sovereign and God is able to do far exceeding abundantly above anything that I could think or imagine, even with the current political climate, even with famine and nakedness and peril and sword. So I can draw my comfort. I can draw my peace 
from a God who is sovereignly in control. We are important, yes, in God's plan, but we ain't the linchpin. This whole thing don't fall apart if I bail out tomorrow. Good news is I'm not going to bail out tomorrow because God ain't going to let me. We are important, yes, but God's plan does not rise and fall with us. One would have thought that once Israel fell away, God was in a bad way, grasping for ways to show Himself to the world. But no, He was as sovereign then as He is now and as He ever will be. So know your role in God's plan. And it's safe and secure and you ain't in charge. Amen. So know your role in God's plan. Now, this next one's tricky. Know your role for God's people. Are the Jews the centerpiece of God's plan? Or are the Gentiles the focus? Or is it different at different times? Should we be preaching the gospel to Jews? This passage tends to make me think that God will do anything to reach the Jewish people, even including Gentiles, to make them jealous. So my question is, do you care about Jewish people? I didn't say, do you care about the nation Israel? (sighs) Be careful. Ooh. Anybody know any Jewish folk? A couple of them? I don't. I don't think I know any Jewish people. Does that mean that I shouldn't be concerned about Jewish people? And here's the underlying principle that I'm going after. Just because I don't know any don't mean they're not important. Just because they don't live in my sphere of influence doesn't mean that I shouldn't be praying for the Jewish people or the Kurdish people or the Greek people or the Italian people. They gave us pizza. I'm pretty sure they're favored in some way, shape, or form, at least by me. Here's the thing. I said back at the beginning of the year when we were here for the New Year's Eve thing, that I wanted to work through that Operation World book and I wanted to be familiar with the nations of the world and what their needs were. Guess who ain't doing that? Me. But I want to because I want to care about the peoples of the world. I want to care about the Jewish people and the Kurdish people and the Italian people and the Greek people and the white people and the black people because my role is to reach out to who? Yes. The ends of the earth until the end of time. And if I'm secluded here in my somewhat comfortable rural southern West Virginia clique and I don't care about the rest of the people in the world, I'm missing the best of God's plan. Because He wants to work through me. He wants to work through my prayers to reach the world. I would love to be a sending church, spitting people out to Afghanistan and Gambia and Russia Japan, Argentina. That's true, we do. We have sent people in, in Russia, in China. We've had people who've been all over the world. I would love to start sending more and more and more because I know my role for God's people. And that is to love them, to pray for them, to evangelize them, to preach the gospel to them, including the Jews, including the Gentiles. Do you care about Jewish people? Do you have a concern to see Jews know and worship Jesus as their Messiah? Because part of the reason we non-Jews have access to Jesus at all is in order to make the Jewish people jealous of what we have and so to draw them to Jesus. And we should live in such a way that Jews and Gentiles should see what we have and be jealous of it and want it. You are a Christian to make people jealous to want Jesus. That's why you're alive. That's why you were reborn. It's to show the world, man, look what they got. Look how these Christians suffer. Look how these Christians fight for their rights. No. Look how these Christians suffer and praise Jesus as they dance to their death. I want what they got. Be careful. Be careful in America in 2017 that you think the best thing you can do is protect your personal rights. It's not what you're here for. Know your role for God's people. So, know your role in God's plan. Know your role for God's people. And finally, oh, this is good. (laughs) Get in the chairs. Get ready to dance. 
Know your role with God's peace. What do I mean by this? Check it out. (laughs) You can't mess up so much that it messes up God's plan. Okay, good. No, no, no. Listen to me. (laughs) You can't do it. Do you get it? Have you ever felt like, have you ever wondered if you have out-sinned God's grace? That there's no way He could possibly use you because of your past or because of your present or because of your wicked heart. Israel sinned and it gave life to the whole world. Israel stumbled, but not to the point of falling away from God's plan. Plug your name in there. Jason stumbled. Jason stumbles every dadgum day, but not to the point of falling away from God's plan. Yes, sin is an affront to the holiness of God. And we should not entertain sin. We should not toy with sin. We should not enjoy sin. But we do. Sin is pleasurable for a season, is what the Scripture says. But even our sinful desires, even our sinful acts, even our sinful disposition, Romans 7, sin lives in my flesh... And the thing that I don't want to do is the thing that I'm doing. And the thing that I do want to do is what I'm not doing. Can I get an amen? It's not strong enough to overpower God's plan, which gives me the very peace that God Himself is available, yes, but very present, very cognizant of who I am. And He's taking who I am, what I'm doing, right and wrong, and He's working out something beautiful for His glory's sake. That gives me peace. That gives me joy. Oh, I am a worm. And man, I love sin sometimes. And I hate to say that. But it's true. And it's an affront to God's holiness. And God washes me clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. And He says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You want to make somebody jealous? Tell them all your sins are forgiven that you don't carry guilt and shame around anymore. The therapy place up there would close down if people could get rid of their guilt and shame. The psych ward at Bar H would close down if people could get rid of their guilt and shame. If people had peace in their hearts. And what this passage tells me is, I can walk with the very peace of God knowing that I can outsend God's grace. I can't mess His plan up. And He's going to reach people through me as I live in such a way that they're jealous of what I've got. That's pretty good news. To teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way and when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you are my hope and stay. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. And I don't just need him. I got him. He has given himself to me. Jesus Christ in me is the hope of glory. I've been given the very righteousness of Christ. And one day I will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of my Father because of who He is and because of what He's done, not because of my performance. You wonder about that? Look at the Jews. Did they stumble? You bet they did. Did they stumble to the point of falling away from God's plan? May it never be. Know your role in God's plan for God's people and know your role with God's peace and live in a way that makes other people jealous of what you got. Let's pray. God, I hope that we're amazed. I hope that we are just floored by your faithfulness to us. Not because of our performance, but because of Him who loved us and gave Himself up for us in order that we might know the very righteousness of God existing in us and through us. We've all stumbled. 
but we have not stumbled to the point of falling away from your plan. And God, I know that there are people who sit here this morning who stumbled from birth. We all did. There are those who do not know Jesus, who have not trusted Him for their salvation, and they are lost. I pray that you would speak hope to them by the power of your Holy Spirit, convicting them of their sins, showing them their need for a Savior, and turning their eyes, opening their eyes, giving them life from the dead, that they might trust Jesus to be their Savior, to forgive their sins and to wipe away all their iniquities, to cover their sins with His blood, and to give them the power to live for Him now and not for themselves, and that the rest of the world would look at them and be jealous and want what they have. Holy Spirit, bring about life in Christ to dead bones this morning. Only you can do that. Do it in all of us, God. Get these bones rattling. You know. You know what you can do, God. I pray that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Hmm. I pray that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.